Well, if you have your, your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 22. So I will do my best. I asked Lori if I can do uh, Bill Egner's mannerisms. She said no, so I, I can't do the... Did you get the noise maker from him? No, I couldn't. Bummer. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. All right, let's, let's, let's begin with a, a word of prayer. Father, we praise you. God, you are so good. Uh, Lord, we are nothing apart from you. Uh, you... Uh, number the sands of the shore, and there is a purpose for each one. Uh, how much do you, more are we worth to you, Lord? You value us. You care for us. You send your son to die for us. Um, that's something we can never repay. So I praise you, and I thank you for that. I lift up to you, Lemma, and the needs at Ethiopia. And God, uh, our ministries are similar in many ways. Father, we long to see the lost come to Jesus we long to equip lay leaders and pastors. And so, Father, I pray that you just continue to strengthen his resolve and his vision. And, God, that you give him not just uh, the hunger to reach the lost, but to equip um, the pastors and lay leaders and just uh, be able to bring good theology and pastoral ministry to all the, the people of Ethiopia so that they can hear the word and that they can be equipped to do your good work. Father, we love you, we praise you, ask you to be with us tonight, God, that you just open our hearts, God, and there's so much in 1 Samuel, and I just pray that um, it will speak to us. Father, your words, not my words, your words, and that your spirit would just stir the souls of every single person sitting here, and God, that you would impassion them, and the God, that the words that are here would not stay here, and God, we are reminded, Lord, that there is a bigger world out there. Help us to not be greedy, selfish Christians. Um, that just hoard things to, for ourselves, Father, that we uh, uh, learn to just give that out, Lord, and share the value of the gospel and the good word to those who do not know or, or those that do want to know, and God, that we can be uh, uh, just a source of help to them. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are looking at the Old Testament, and I get to just jump in the middle. I feel like I'm just right in the middle of the sandbox. So I'll try to... Uh, teach this with a little bit of uh, Bill's mannerisms, but also uh, kind of sprinkle a little bit of my seasoning on it. Uh, so to catch up for me, before I, I jumped into this, I'd I like to share with you uh, how I kind of see the Old Testament. and kind of use the five C's whenever I study the Old Testament. Uh, it kind of categorizes it and helps me to see how God is working in the Old Testament. So the first C is creation. God's power is seen in the making of the universe, and you really just see how his handiwork is sprinkled throughout the, the book of Genesis. And then uh, as you move through the Pentateuch, you see God's covenant, like God making his promise, man, sin enters into the world, and God has to establish his, his plan. And so God uses the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then dot, 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 ellipsis, right, all the way to Jesus. So not just his creation, not just covenant, but also the commandments. Right? So we see how God establishes law for the people to govern over them, to set standards so that they can live a moral, ethical life, a, a life that's pleasing to God. So we, we not only see the creation, covenant, and the commandment, and so after the commandment establishes over Israel, and Israel is 
thrust into the, into the wilderness, right, after the captivity of Egypt, um, they, 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 they wander, and they wander. And we see kind of near the end of uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're, they're kind of in this place called the Kadesh Barnea, right, the, the place of wandering. And God shows his provision in the Kadesh Barnea, and they, 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 their shoes never age. They're provided food for 40 years, in manna and quail. And you really see how God works uh, in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, you're thrust into the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. So that kind of sped up, you know, did this really quick. And so now we get to what I call the charismata. Charismata is God's spirit being indwelt into his people. We see this in Judges. We see this with Gideon. We see this in the likes of Samson. Some would even argue that Moses is the first prophet. And so he too experienced the charismata, the Holy Spirit being indwelt within him. But we really see the power of the charismata in 1 Samuel. We see it uh, with uh, King David. We even see it with King Saul. Uh, you guys, I, I jump into this at 1 Samuel chapter 22. So you must have seen at least parts of the Holy Spirit in the work of Saul and Samuel. So we see the charismata in the works of the kings and the prophets. And at last, I generally tell in the, the, the last few books of the Old Testament, and I call that uh, the captivity. So we're not going to go over that. We're just going to stop up here with the charismata. And it's interesting, the, the next slide is 1 Samuel, and then you see this word, monarchy. This is not what God intended for Israel. You simply have to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, and this is the point where Israel is saying, ha, we, 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 want, we want a king. We want to be like all the other countries. Just give us a king. So God said, okay. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is a major shift. It's a paradigm shift. They move from a theocracy to a monarchy. But I'm going to kind of wrestle with this tension a little bit. I, I don't think this is a monarchy. I think by the time you get to King Saul, you have what I call a absolute monarchy. Uh, King Saul disobeys. King Saul, I mean, he sees God at work in his life, but he just pushes him away. He doesn't want God. There's something good about monarchies. I mean, we see this with King David. We see parts of that with King Solomon. We see that with King Josiah and King Hezekiah. But somehow for, for, for King Saul, he doesn't get it. And so God would warn them of this. God told them in 1 Samuel 8 that something would happen if they were to be ruled under a king. Not just that they would take their daughters and that they would take their land and that they would take their taxes, but that they would take God away. And we are seeing that by the time you get to 1, Kings, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22. But let me give you a timeline. I know uh, Bill gave me a whole set of notes, but there's a lot to gloss over. And I'm going to try to do this in 10 minutes. I know I have, uh, you know, kind of a buffer here. So I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I could. So going from 1 Samuel 22 to 1 Samuel 31. But a little context. Um, we already talked about, I talked about briefly about chapter 15. And Samuel disobeys God. And at Mount Carmel, Samuel chastises Samuel and approaches him and rebukes him and says, I... God does not desire sacrifice. 
He desires obedience. And so uh, because of that, Saul's kingdom was taken away from him. And in chapter 16, David gets anointed at Bethlehem as the next king. See, in chapter 17, you guys are, uh, you, you know this, David kills Goliath at the Valley of Soko. And in chapter 18, David befriends Jonathan, and they become BFFs. But he doesn't find solace with Jonathan because King Saul would attack him. And so protected by God and protected by Jonathan, David was able to escape. And so we get into chapters 19 and 20. And so David makes his way to Ramah. And Ramah is the city north. If you see the back of your notes, you will see towards the north, close to the Sea of Galilee, is a city called Ramah. That's Samuel's stomping grounds. That's his, that's his home turf. So he makes his way there. He gets some wisdom from Samuel. He goes back to Jonathan. And after visiting with Jonathan, he procures a, an escape plan about what Saul is doing. Because Jonathan at first did not think that his, his own daddy would kill his BFF. <laughs> and so Jonathan finds out that, yeah, he's out to kill him. David then makes his way to Nob, and here he is visiting Abimelech, and this is the high priest's house. Now, when you think about this, David's best friend is Jonathan, and his two mentors are Samuel and a high priest named Abimelech. Let me tell you, David, man, he's a smart guy. He has some pretty good friends and, and really good mentors. And, and that says a lot of us, us as, as believers too, right? Find good mentors and find a trustworthy friend. David had that. David makes his way uh, uh, from Nob and Abimelech, and he, 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 he for some reason, uh, goes to Achish to Gath, because now he finds out that Saul's after him. He makes his way thinking that maybe hey, I could have a friendship with Achish, who is the king of Gath, who is uh, kind of where Goliath was from. But he, he was afraid. He, he finds out he makes a, a, a bad decision, so he goes insane. And so in the end of chapter 21, he's going all crazy, right? And so he gets, out of, uh, he gets out of Achish and Gath, and we'll go to him later. But in chapters 22, he, he, chapter 22, he runs and he makes it to where we are now, at the cave of Adullam. Now, I don't know about you, uh, not many caves here. I've been to a few caves, but I don't think I would make a place of residence at a cave. Well, he does. Uh, he goes out and he, he goes to the cave and he makes a lot of decisions, including uh, verse 3 in chapter 22. He sends his parents over across to the other side of Moab, across the, uh, over, uh, on the other side of the Dead Sea, and he places over 400 of his own family on the other side at Mitzpah in Moab. And then he finds out in chapter 22, not only has Saul been trailing him, but Saul makes his way to Nob. And you remember at Nob, that's where Abimelech was. And here he massacres and he kills all of the high priests at Nob. And David feels remorse. It's a great picture in, in your notes. If you turn it to the second page, you see the, 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 the slaying of all the the prophets or the priests at Nob, and only one son survives, Abiathar, and David feels so much remorse that he says, I will dedicate my life to protecting you. 
change of scene. David now goes to fight the Philistines to free the city of Kalia. This is in chapter 23. Yes, Saul continues to pursue David. He hears of David's work in Kalia and of the deliverance of the, the, the Kaleans from the Philistines, and he pursues them through the wilderness of Ziph. Uh, David finds out because Jonathan encourages David and tells him of that, that Saul was pursuing him. But somehow, Saul is distracted. And one verse, in chapter 23, verse 27, Saul hears word that the Philistines aren't going to take revenge on David. They're going to take revenge on Saul. <laughs> so David is able to kind of escape and finds his way to a place called Engedi. So you guys are familiar with the oasis of Engedi, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And I love chapter 23, um, not only because it ends with this place called Engedi, or quote-unquote, the rock of escape. This is a place not once, not twice, but three times David would talk to God. The, the scriptures actually says in verse 2 that he inquires of the Lord. This is chapter, 20, chapter 23. And then in verse 4 again, he, he inquires of the Lord. And then verse 10, all the way to verse 14, he inquires of the Lord again. This is, this, is, this is intrinsic. This is like already built into David's character that he loves God, and he's not going to make a, dish, a decision apart from him, at least at this juncture. And so in chapters 24, David, uh, Saul finds out that David, where David was, so he sends 3,000 men to chase uh, uh, David, and he sits at a cave, and it so happens David is in that very same cave, and David chooses not to kill David. King Saul. Change scene. The beginning of chapter 25, you see the death of Samuel. Not much is written here. It's only one verse. David mourns the death of Samuel, and then right after that, he continues running, and now he's at the wilderness of Paran. Somehow, as he is in Paran, he heads again back to Carmel, and there he meets Nabal and Abigail. And there's this little skirmish about uh, vineyard and they're, they're fighting and, and Abigail intercedes for David and he saves David. And so if you stop here and just to think again, so his BFF is Jonathan. One of his mentors, Samuel, now passed away. Then Abimelech, he talks to God. He has Abiathar with him, son of Abimelech. And now he has Abigail. Man, he's surrounding himself with some good people. And I'll tell you, if there's a model of a, a, a godly man, this is it. I mean, you want a godly man for your sons and daughters, or your sons, <laughs> excuse me, not daughters, a godly daughter, excuse me. You want a godly daughter to look at a godly son. This, the, the, this, these are the characteristics, and you can see this all from 1 Samuel 22 all the way to 27. Uh, verse 20, uh, ch sorry, chapter 25. David goes back after meeting Abigail and getting married to her. He, goes back, he now runs back out into the wilderness, the wilderness of Ziph. And somehow Saul finds out where he's at. They meet up at the same place. Saul doesn't know that David was there. David knows that Saul's there. And, and again, all, his, all of David's men are saying, here's your chance. Go kill him. Go, go get Saul. You can get him. Uh, David doesn't. He, again, in chapter, 20, 20, chapter 26, he does chooses not to kill Saul. Now, Chapter 27 to, verses, to chapter 28, verse 2, gets a little bit uneasy. David becomes the Boba Fett to the alliance. He, in essence, hires himself as, or, or sells himself as a hired man, mercenary, to 
Achish. Now, again, remember, he killed Goliath. Okay, this is an uneasy truce and alliance. So he does work for Achish. And so we see that for the next chapter. And then you have a change of scene. In chapter 28, Saul goes to Endor. Now, before you think, oh, well, Saul, you're such a terrible guy. You, you went to go see uh, the witch of Endor. Why did you do that? Well, I mean, think about this. If you look at 28 verse 3, he actually does the right thing. He does. The scripture says he removes all the spiritists and all the, 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 the magicians that were there. Now, how many of you went to the sermon this morning? You heard what Cody said in the beginning. Sometimes you can do all the right things, and things don't work out. We see this with King Saul. He does all the right things. Most of the time he did all the right things. I mean, he didn't do it completely. <laughs> but his heart is never in the right place. You can go to church on Sunday. You can go to small groups. Right? Cody said that this morning. But this is a good reminder. A lot of us think that we look like King David, but we may look like King Saul. It's this idea of, are we giving all of ourselves to God? Or, you know, we're just keeping the, some of the parts to ourselves. And we're, we're going to go over some of Bill's notes, and you'll, you'll get what I'm saying here. But, but Saul's heart's not in the same place, and he conjures up, and we can save questions for after class, and you can ask me what I think happens here. But here, the witch of Endor conjures up the spirit from the ground. She sees something, she sees something, she hears it. And, Saul, and, and Samuel gives this prophecy that, 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 that King Saul will die and he will lose his kingdom. And so this battle ensues in chapter 29. It was uh, Philistines against King Saul's army and they would meet at Jezreel. Achish decides that, hey, David, David's following us. I, I, we, we think that David might betray us, so why don't you just go back home? And so David does not follow Achish into battle, but Achish makes this little remark in chapter 29, verse 9. He says, David's face was like a face of an angel. He's not talking about his charming good looks. I think he's seeing something about the King David. God has anointed this man, that even at the, in the face of an enemy, of an, of an enemy right, being a mercenary, that this, this king, this vile king, would see the face of an angel. This is verse 9. Uh, David then, you see another scene change, chapter 30. David uh, now goes to Ziklag, and here uh, uh, he's, he goes on a mission because he finds out that Abinahab, uh, Abinhoab and, and Abigail were captured. And so he goes to battle against the Amalekites. And again, and I love this chapter, verses 6 to 8, and especially chapter 30. David, David seeks the Lord, and he prays. We see this. David has this really good relationship. David goes out, he fights the Amalekites, uh, and he rescues his wives. So the question I ask is, why is he fighting the Amalekites? Remember what King Saul did in 1 Samuel 15? Did he get rid of all the Amalekites? No, he didn't. David had to finish his job. Okay. And we'll go over some of the notes later, and you'll see how this Comes together. Uh, David's uh, heart is for his men. His men were weak. And so we see, in, as it tells in, and, it, it, and, the, and the story is ending in chapter 31, um, the spoils uh, that he receives from the battle against the Amalekites were divided evenly amongst his men. Even though many of them were weak, David shared um, the loot 
And in 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 31 is a prophetic fulfillment. King Saul dies, and he dies at this place called Bathshan at a temple of Ashtoreth, okay, which is the primary temple where uh, the Philistines will worship their god. And his body would be thrown onto a mantle and hung for all of the, the worshipers to see. And so King Saul dies um, just a, not a pretty death. So that gives you kind of a review of what's going on from chapters 22 to 31. I do encourage you to read it. There is a lot of meat, and there's just so much to, uh, to, to go through. And, and I, I don't want to do any injustice, but I want you guys to kind of uh, uh, get at least a little taste of it. Uh, so let me look through the notes here. So here, what is David going through? Da- David is, in essence, waiting for God to act, right? There is a desert within the promised land. If you go to the Dead Sea, I mean, if you just think of the topography and you go to the back of the page, you'll see the Sea of Galilee, you see the Jordan River, and then you see the Dead Sea. And towards the east of it is a, a area that's just a lot of land, just sand. It's, it's, it's a wilderness. It's, it's deserty. And so here, David wanders from, these, from place to place, and he's wandering in the wilderness of Judah, and actually, if you read through the text, there's three types of wilderness. There's, there's three names. There's the, des- there's the wilderness of Ziph, there's the wilderness of Moan, and there's a, there's a wilderness of Paran. And in the wilderness, here, he's just wandering and he's moving about th- uh, all throughout the wilderness. And circumstances have gone wrong. Uh, um, they've gone upside down over him. Um, he's gone from being a favorite of the people to now being a fugitive. Um, and he's also carrying the responsibility of leading and providing for his 400 to 600 personnel family or persons or that he, that's, or, or that's in his camp. And he moves them to, to Moab, and we, we briefly talked about it. But he's definitely not where he thought he would be. Right? First Kings chapter 16. I'm supposed to be king. Why am I wandering? And so David will spend about 10 years in, in the desert. And these, uh, the, the Moan, Paran, and Ziv, just wandering. Not a good place to be. Let me say this. Uh, here's the principle. When God leads David into the desert, David has to wait for God to lead him out. When God leads David into the desert, David has to wait for God to lead him out. Now, does that only pertain to David? I don't think so. I think you can easily just take David out and just insert your name. When God leads Phil into the desert, Phil has to wait for God to lead him out. This is a great principle we can draw from this. Well, what can the desert produce? Okay. Godliness. Godliness. Uh, David obeys God's word. David honors his parents, right? He sent him to Mitzvah. David honored the office of the king, took appropriate responsible action. He wouldn't murder Saul. He had two chances to do all this. He did not do it. He valued God's anointing. He valued God's appointment. And he will not step into his place until God will rightfully give him the throne. It's not that time yet. David did everything possible to not just protect his BFF, but also his, his Jonathan's father. Not, David didn't just obey God's word. He puts his faith in God's character. He sought God's counsel and will and expressed his trust in God 
through Psalms. I already said in, in one chapter, he goes in chapter 23 and chapter 30, primarily the passages where you see that David uses the words, he inquires of the Lord, he inquires of the Lord, he inquires of the Lord. David is very proactive when it comes to seeking God's counsel. We see this in the scriptures. We see this in, in, in the book of Psalms, uh, specifically Psalm 141, verses 4 to 5. Uh, scripture say, says that he humbles himself before men. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. He openly expected men to correct him. He not only received rebuke, he took responsibilities for his actions, and he openly received God's mercy and grace. What else can a desert produce? Uh, uh, not just godliness, but and, and, and all these points here, but he, he's also generous with God's provisions. Uh, chapter 30, uh, he shares the spoils and he gives gifts to others. David does not hoard things to himself. He gives it away. And again, he not only obeys God's word, not only puts his faith in God's character, not only humbles himself before man, He's generous with God's provisions. He shows mercy to his persecutors. He showed Saul mercy, and he did not take revenge. He remains encouragedly patient, and he left revenge and reward with God. God decides. And you see the oasis of Engedi. I mentioned this briefly. In chapter 24, can also be translated fountain of youth, right? But the word there is for kid, as in a kid animal, like a goat. And here it's, it sits in the middle of desert and it's rich, uh, it's, it is a rich oasis of water. You actually YouTube this and type oasis of water. And there's a, a Dead Sea uh, company that actually shows you this video of all the waterfalls, this water just coming out. It's just rich water. And Songs of Solomon kind of, kind, of, kind of talks about it. In chapter 1, verse 14, it talks about the blossoms and the vineyards of Engedi. Um, DeadSea.com talks about this oasis as a strip of three miles along steep slopes of the Judean desert, curving down to meet the western coast of the Dead Sea. The lower plateau is, is at an elevation of 300 meter, meters below sea level, while the higher slopes tower to 100 meters above sea level. The rivers of David and Arugat are dug into the mountains in a V-shape and give life to the whole region. The entire flow of the rivers yield 3.5 million cubic meters of water a year. In the middle of the wilderness, there's this huge oasis. God knows what he's doing. Saul can have his throne, but God can take care of David. David obeys God's word. He puts his faith in God's character. He humbles himself before man. He's generous with God's provision. He shows mercy to his persecutor. He remains courageously patient, and he shows remarkable restraint. This is the type of character God grows in the desert. You guys hate it. 
But God tends to wed faith with suffering. It seems to be very common in the Christian life. Desert not only produces godliness, but it can also produce the opposite. We see the dullness and defeat of King Saul. God is now silent towards Saul. Saul continues to remain disobedient, and Saul comes to a place of despair. Um, he's unprepared to lead, to fight, or to die. I mean, just look at his actions in chapter 28. He doesn't go to God. He doesn't do what David did in chapter 23 and verse 30. Actually, in contrast, uh, he, 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 does, he does everything opposite of that. He goes and seeks the spiritus. He loses his army. He loses his sons. He loses his life, and he loses his honor. And chapter 31 is probably one of the most deeply saddening part of Scripture where you see a man hung on a mantle like a prize at a, at, at a, at a false temple, uh, idol temple. Uh, and it just goes back to 1 Samuel 15, like I said earlier, the Amalekites, right? The sin we tolerate is the one that brings us down. God doesn't want us to simply sacrifice. God demands our obedience. Bashan is, is the place where David was hung. It's east of Jezreel where Saul and his army fled in, a, in, a, in the losing battle. Um, but if you actually do a little bit more research on Bashan, in Judges chapter 1, verse 27, um, one of the sons of Joseph actually did not get rid of all the people that were in Bashan. And so the people at Bashan were still living there. And it's interesting that Bashan would be the place where they would house the body of King Saul up on a mantle. Now it's only a place of ruin. There's not really much to it. As you can see in the pictures, it's just stone and rubble. Repeat the principle again. When God leads us into the desert, we have to wait for God lead us out. Can't force God's hand. Simply have to trust and obey. So are you in the desert? Have circumstances have gone upside down on, your, on you for no self-induced reason? Have you gone from favorite to fugitive with someone? Have you been betrayed by a former friend or a loved one who may still even want to hurt you? You're in a tough place just trying to scratch out a living. Somebody just approached me before this class um, saying that they're in a tough place trying to scratch out a living. Um, do you feel alone, out of sight and out of mind or shelved? My in-laws are dealing with that, I'm dealing with a divorce at an old age, 80, 73. I, I can relate to that. My father-in-law doesn't feel as bad, but my mother-in-law feels terrible. He was alone. He doesn't know where to go. What a great opportunity to introduce her to Jesus, to non-believers. Um, it's amazing how the desert can produce godliness. James 1, 2-4 reminds us that, uh, uh, James, as he writes, he reminds us of, of, about joy and perseverance. And he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. It's funny. 
when you read through the pastoral epistles, the word Eusebia is the word for godliness. But Eusebia is just a, a word for virtue. It means pious. But the reason why it turns into godliness is whenever Timothy and Titus wrote, they wrote in, in a sense that God is the connector. He's the genitival uh, connector. It's of God. It's the piety of God. It's God's character. It's intrinsic to who he is. And when we pursue godliness, we're pursuing his piety, the way he lives, the way his character is. So James draws on this godliness. It only comes from God. It's not from anybody else. You want to get out of the desert? Our faith has to be in him. We have to look past our circumstances. So what does the desert require? It requires a change of perspective. It goes from how can I get out of this to what can I get out of this? We always want a way out. If I make more money, my wife was more beautiful, my husband was stronger and more able to do this and that, and we're trying to find ways out. How can I make it better? Instead of trying to learn from the process, what can I I get out of this. I think David exemplifies this in, his, in this narrative. The desert requires not just a change of perspective, but also faith. Right? Trust and obey God's word. Trust God's goodness. Trust God's way. Stay this course without scheming. I like tell my kids all the time, just tell the truth. Right? Be candid. Be honest. Don't, don't cover it. <laughs> just tell me the truth. It's easier to deal with. Don't scheme. It's God who leads the godly out of the desert. It's God who leads the godly out of the desert. Not just faith, not just a change of perspective, but patience. Patience. Romans 12.12 says, Rejoice in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. I love the King James Version of the word patience. It's long-suffering, right? Or suffer long. (laughs) Right? In prayer, in hope, in joy, in mercy, humility, generosity, in self-restraint or self-control. Be patient. A lot of testimonies in Scripture or in, in, in church history, the likes that, that, that we don't even know unless we read. Right? William Carey did not see a convert in India until seven years later. Um, Jonathan Edwards gave... Uh, he, he preached, but he preached in such a quiet voice. He, 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 didn't, he still drew a lot of people, but he, it was hard work. He had to persevere and be patient uh, through the Great Awakening until he saw God's handiwork during that period of time. It, it, it's throughout history. We see how God works through the lives of different people, but it, it requires a lot of patience. And it's not always the most ideal situations. So obey God's word and wait for him to act. Obey God's word and wait for him to act. It takes faith and patience to receive what God has promised. It takes faith and patience to receive what God has promised. And you have to wed the two together. And that's what David did. Next time, read the book of Psalms. All of it. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Woo! Only 150 chapters.
It's great. You have to memorize, what's the longest, 116? 119. You have to memorize 119 in Hebrew because it's actually breaking down in, in, in the Hebrew alphabet. So, all right. Let's bow our heads and pray. And I welcome any questions after class just so that everybody else can dis, dis, disperse. But let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. God, you give such a beautiful picture of redemption through the life of King David. And God, that you would spare him. And God, he's, he's not perfect. We look to the cross. We don't look at David. We look to the cross because David exemplified a life of suffering and perseverance and patience. And God, that there's an Engedi in our lives in, while we're in the moments that we are in the desert, Father. So help us look for those times where we can draw fresh water from you. And God, it's in the scriptures. It's in perseverance. It's in seeking you in, in our prayer life. God, it's in coming to places like Christ's chapel where we uniquely tether ourselves to friends who love you. God, that they can be accountable to us and remind us of how good you are. And God, we want to be that place. Christ's chapel is that place. And so, God, empower not just the leaders, but everyone here, God, that God, we are your body, we are the body. We are your hands and feet. So, God, use us to encourage one another to love each other. And like David, God, he the good friends, the good wife, the good mentors. God, we need that. In order for us to make it through the desert, in order to make, for us to make it through the difficult circumstances that we're in, Father, we need those people. We need this church. And God, God, we need you. And so, Father, help us to chase you. Help us to know you. And, Father, no matter how difficult and how long the book of Psalm may be, no matter how hard it is to interpret and to understand the symbolism that's in Revelation, God, use this church, Lord, and what we are doing to help uplift those who are hurting, to serve those who have not, and God, to just love, like Cody said this morning, to love and help us to be known, be known for that, that we love one another. Father, strengthen us. Be with us today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.